Hello and welcome to the third and final webinar in the lead up to the Cumberland Lodge Police Conference towards justice, law enforcement and reconciliation that takes place virtually in June. My name's Ed Newell and I'm the Chief Executive of Cumberland Lodge. The Lodge has a long history of working on policing and criminal justice matters and our annual police conference is now in its 39th year. This year, we're examining criminal justice approaches to addressing historical wrongs in society, in particular, the role of the police in promoting successful and enduring reconciliation and the pursuit of wider social justice. If you missed the first two webinars in the series, you can watch them on demand via the read, watch, listen page of our website. In the previous webinar, we were joined by Jonathan Powell, CEO of Intermediate, and the British government's former chief negotiator on Northern Ireland, and Assistant Chief Constable Kerryn Wilson from Lincolnshire Constabulary. They discussed different ways to examine past harms with a particular focus on the Good Friday Agreement, which Jonathan was deeply involved in negotiating, and how Northern Ireland confronts its troubled past. The series is supported by our freelance research associate, Professor Martina Fieltzer, who's written excellent short briefing documents for each webinar. Martina's briefings can also be accessed via our Read, Watch, Listen page, and we do encourage you to take a look. In today's webinar, we're exploring the role of the victim in investigations of past harms and injustices. To help us do this, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Dame Vera Baird, Victims Commissioner for England and Wales, and Assistant Commissioner Robert Beckley, overall command of Operation Resolve, the criminal investigation into the deaths of 96 people at the Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield in 1989. Rob is also wearing another hat, or perhaps I should say helmet, and that's as a member of the Cumberland Lodge Police Conference Steering Committee. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us. Before I hand over to, uh, to Rob and Vera, I'd like to remind those of you who are participating live that you can submit questions. If you're taking part live on Zoom, please use the Q&A function. For Facebook users, you can comment on our Facebook live stream. For those of you also on Twitter, you can submit questions and comments by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge and using the hashtag CLTowardsJustice. That's enough from me, and I'll now hand over to Rob and Vera. Uh, well, welcome everyone, and um, welcome to the Cumberland Lodge uh, discussion that we've got today. And I'm absolutely delighted uh, to have uh, as somebody to have a conversation with uh, Dame Vera Baird, who has a very distinguished uh, history and career um, as a barrister, a QC, uh, MP for Redcar um, from 2001 to 2010, Solicitor General, Northumbria Police Commissioner um, from 2012 until uh, a, almost a year ago, 2019. And in her career, uh, she has had a particular focus on uh, the rights and, and the needs of victims, uh, a focus on preventing violence against women, girls and, and vulnerable people. But, but to think it's all about victims would be wrong. And we certainly 
uh, in her career, you can see that she's dealt with both civil and criminal matters and has defended some very tough and challenging cases. So uh, we will no doubt touch upon in our discussion um, with Dame Vera that some of that balance um, between defendants and victims' rights, uh, which has been a point of discussion in some of the other um, uh, debates in the series. Um, but uh, welcome, Dame Vera. And, and um, I should also just explain in the context of my role um, as commander of Operation Resolve and responsible for the Hillsborough cases, uh, my criminal cases are over, but there is uh, a criminal cases that uh, are about to start in April on matters that happened after the disaster. Um, it's not uh, my area of responsibility, um, and I won't be commenting or making any reference to that because, of course, it is important to be fair to those who are uh, progressing through the criminal justice system. So um, uh, that area, if, if I steer any questions away or, or any points away from that, you'll understand that's the context. Although we can, of course, talk about Hillsborough in general because uh, there's a lot uh, in, in that context relevant to our discussions. Um, so, uh, with that as a health warning, um, perhaps it, um, Vera, it would be good to uh, examine something that's come up in one or two of the previous discussions about almost what is a victim, and, and I think in the context of your role, um, it would be useful just to, for you to be able to describe a little bit of, of, of your perspective of victim um, their rights and needs, and and your role um, now as Victims Commissioner for England and Wales. Well, thanks very much, uh, Rob, and it's really nice to talk to you, and I'm very glad to be here at Cumberland Lodge. Years and years ago, Cumberland Lodge used to be attached to Grey's Inn, and I've been here many times myself, been there many times myself, um, uh, at weekend uh, events and judging by the backdrop behind Ed, it's still as glorious as it used to to be. So I'm pleased to be here. So my role, let me, let me. I think it's best if I sort of, first of all, set out for people what my role is as the victim's commissioner and set out what a victim is in the context of that role. And it's all set out in the Domestic Violence Crime and Victims Act, which was passed in 2004, where ironically, as a member of parliament, I was on the bill committee that scrutinized it clause by clause, little thinking that I was scrutinizing my own role um, sometime ahead. So, I mean, my role, what my functions are, are to promote the interests of victims and witnesses, to encourage good practice in their treatment, and to keep under review the victim's code, which uh, many people watching will know, is the code by which victims are entitled to a level of good treatment within the, the criminal justice system. And I'm supposed to keep that under review. But if we were in a sort of PowerPoint situation now, of course, the next slide would be my powers to do these things. And it would be empty because I don't have any. So how we work is, is, is quite different from having any power to keep, for instance, the code under review. I've also got to produce an annual report setting out what um, I've done. And I think the one final thing I need to say about the sort of statutory role, and then we can maybe talk a little more freely, is that I cannot exercise any of my functions in the interests of a particular victim. So I can't take victims' complaints 
at all. I can't uh, start a case on behalf of a proceeding, uh, a proceedings on behalf of a victim, and I can't uh, in any way get involved with anything that any decision that's been made as part of the judicial process, in which that is quite understandable. And just to make clear, we get an enormous number of victim complaints and concerns coming through uh, on a weekly basis because it isn't well understood that I can't deal with those as individuals. What we try to do, of course, since my role really is policy for victims and driving the improvements agenda for victims is to try to look to see if in each complaint there is a le an element of policy that's gone wrong or the way that one of the institutions has dealt with an individual that's gone wrong that we can then look at in a broader context as we we go forward so that's kind of what my role is and a victim your question sorry to take so long to reply but i just think it's useful to set out what the role is it's not that fantastically well known a victim is a victim of an offense a criminal offense and it's or and or a victim of antisocial behavior and it does it's immaterial to that defendant to that definition whether a complaint's ever been made and whether a person has ever been charged or that a person has ever been convicted and witnesses are what you would expect a witness to be really so my role is confined to victims of crime and antisocial behaviour and generally trying to improve things for them. We have kind of two methods of working. One is research where we look into how particular kinds of victim are treated and make recommendations. And the other is having a vast network, as vast as we can make it, into victims and their organisations and also into the people who can help to improve there are lots. So clearly uh, in, in Westminster with the judiciary, with the uh, ministers, with officials uh, and so on. That's how we kind of run our role. Because as, as you know, there, there's and there was certainly in our last dis or the discussion before last quite a lot of debate about that definition of victim, about that there's got to be uh, a conviction to support the definition. And as you know, I've written a bit on that. And, and yeah. my view is it, you know, basic dictionary definitions are much more about the harm somebody has a has has um, experienced rather than the um, that rather than the conviction that goes with it. It's a very legalistic way to look at it that it must have a conviction attached. Yes, I, th I don't think it's helpful to think in those terms. Obviously, I understand the criminal justice system has to regard somebody as a complainant, and that's quite right. Mm. Before there is a um, a conviction, if there is going to be. A conviction and to call somebody a victim in front of a jury would be you know since the finger is being pointed at the person in the dock would be a little bit uh, inappropriate and presumptuous in fact very inappropriate and presumptuous but that doesn't undermine the reality that for instance somebody who approaches victim support for help needs to get it whether they are uh, you know in the end going to even go to the criminal justice system and ask for help. They, they want, you know, they say they're a victim and they want support and help, then it's up to the victim's support system to deliver it for them. I do have a better, better, fuller sort of look at a victim in the criminal justice context. Obviously, I accept the court argo. As you said, Rob, I, I, in fact, I was completely a defence barrister. I never prosecuted. I, I prosecuted 
oh, for Greenpeace, um, and um, I prosecuted for some trade unions when um, there were traffic warden type people who used to get knocked about by, we, we prosecuted on behalf of trade unions to try to protect them, Greenpeace, when someone had done polluted, but I've never prosecuted on behalf of the state, full trial, I was always a defense lawyer, and I fully understand, and in this, con in this role that I am now, I have repeatedly said that the victims' rights, victims' entitlements, good treatment for victims, has absolutely nothing to do with undermining defendants' rights. It is nothing to do with a balance of rights at all. I say put a red circle around the defendants' rights and leave them exactly where they are. And there is an enormous amount you can do to improve the lot of victims in the criminal justice system. And you don't come near to that red line. If you start to do, then we have to stop and we have to sit down and think about it. But nobody really expects it to happen once you've understood it like that. It's not an either or, as you, yeah, it's, it's yeah, very much so. And, and I think that's, it, the debate sometimes can feel a bit polarised in that respect, can't it? It's, oh, but yeah, very much so. And I think a reality that we're increasingly understanding, though, is that today's victim can be tomorrow's defendant and vice versa. I mean, notably with young people involved in street violence, often mm. somebody is hurt one day and hurts back the next. Yeah. With uh, people who are victims of domestic abuse, they are one day a victim. Sometimes they're coerced into doing criminal offences. Sometimes they're so reduced by the way they're treated at home that they have to almost do survival crime. Yeah. We're quite used to that idea with victims of modern slavery, who've got a defence. Yeah. they commit offences of a fairly low kind when they are also victims. So it isn't appropriate, I think, to think in that polarised way at all, given the closeness of these two communities. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just a reminder to everyone, um, do put any questions um, up on the uh, chat. They'll be extracting the questions and sending them to me so I can corral them. We, we won't be just talking for the whole session. We're very keen um, to, to hear your questions and, and draw those out as well. Um, but but going, you, you talked about the really important needs of victims. Um, you, you, and and I've, you know, some of what you've written has been about procedural justice and communication and professionalism. Can, can you um, describe a bit of what you feel needs to be done a bit more in that those arenas or that, that those sort of categories, um, if not more other categories as well, to, to to, to provide better for victims? Yes, so uh, in 2016, my predecessor, Baroness Newlove, got a, 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 did a report um, about what works, that's what it's called, what works for victims of crime. And it is about cope and recovery. So if anybody, if somebody is a victim of crime, uh, they are affected, they are affected by it. Obviously people who've suffered um, sexual abuse in childhood can be traumatised in a way that affects their life throughout. Yeah. I mean, the um, NHS England accept that they probably need to supply, in some cases, lifelong support for victims of sexual abuse. And somebody who's been very badly a victim of violence may be disabled for the rest of their lives. At the high end, it's very obvious that people suffer, but it, they people are impacted even at the relatively low level of crime. So in a burglary where nothing is stolen but the door's broken is terribly intrusive for some people. It makes them feel targeted, it makes them feel demeaned, it makes them feel used by someone. They wonder what they've done 
for that to happen. And I mean, it happens to the toughest of us. I had a conversation with a senior police officer once who was burgled and he said he never parks his car when he arrives home without wondering whether the house is going to be in order or something has happened again. So people are impacted and they need to know, because after all, the state's not stopped them from being impacted in that way. It's not protected them from crime. They need to know that the state values them as a citizen and intends to do all it can to put it right. And it is about good treatment. So it is about, I mean, at its, at its most basic, information, explaining what the criminal justice system is like and what the processes are, mm. treating people with respect, acknowledging that they have been wronged or they have suffered and that the state needs to, to help them to ensure they get uh, referred to good victim services, which is, I think, easier and much more regular now than it used to be because they're delivered by police and crime commissioners in the local area, according to needs assessment, usually done with the police. So that, that probably is done, but nonetheless, it's hugely important. And to keep people well informed, to tell them about decisions that are made or are going to be made, in some cases, to let them participate in the decision, yeah. though they will never be determinative and generally to treat them in a way that helps them to cope with it and to recover and restores them from that demeaned feeling that they have when they've been targeted by somebody, you know, an enemy they didn't know was yeah. out there. Yeah. All of that fairly simple stuff, uh, actually. And you can see why I say it has absolutely no impact on the defendant's rights in a trial at all. Yeah, yeah. And... And do you see differences, because of course the focus that we've got in this particular conference is, is about non-recent, you know, some so-called historic, and I know there's lots of issues around how we term, because it's, you know, that, that point that it's not historic for the person who's been harmed. Do you see any distinctions or do you see it all as a continuum uh, with many of the same issues, um, if it's non-recent, as much as if it's happened last week, so to speak. Well, I'm, I imagine, I mean, to be fair, Rob, you're probably better able to answer <laughs> that than I am, because you've had all that exposure yeah. to Hillsborough very much um, uh, over the last few years. But my own sense of it is that those needs are quite basic. And people need to have faith put in them. They need, and this sounds controversial, but it truly isn't. They need to have, they need to be believed. They need to be, to, to understand that the system believes them. And I don't mean like believing in fairies or Father Christmas against all the odds. I think there's a completely false illusion between that guy, Nick, um, and, and believing most complainants of burglary or whatever it is who are believed and should be believed for purposes of registering, uh, you know, that the state accepts that they've been wrong. And then of course the police do an impartial investigation to try and find out the truth. But that's very key and is part of that restorative process. And I think with some historic uh, events where that simply hasn't happened, that is a continuing injustice that must fester I think uh, yeah. with people more and more as it goes along a lot of justice yeah. for everybody really is about fairness isn't it and understanding yeah, I, yeah and, and, and you are right I, 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 but if there was any specific thing that 
applied, I, th I think it all applies across whether it was recent or non-recent, but I think if there's anything specific I feel about past injustices is that sometimes the, pe the people involved have had to fight so hard and, and challenge the system so much to get their voice heard that it, that it, it, that creates its own deeper trauma um, and, and creates a deep cynicism about public bodies like our own, like police and, and others about really, are they on our side or are, do we have to fight the world? So, so I, th I think if there's, I don't think there's differences, but I think there's probably a scale and, and a deeper history. I think, I think that is, as you rightly say, a sort of qualitative thing rather than a black and white thing, because you will find victims now who relatively recently uh, were victimised and found their engagement with the criminal justice system actually made them worse yeah. because yeah. they were not believed, they were not supported, they were challenged. And that was by the police and by the CPS. They didn't feel that they were treated well in court and they nursed a sense of grievance. I mean, you can't really put a finite limit uh, on that once it starts. So. Uh, are we to say, you know, people in Hillsborough have suffered a lot more because of the horrible, horrible way they were treated compared to somebody who's who's had an experience, an appalling criminal justice experience as some are rejected from being even getting a charge because of their lifestyle or, you know, seriously challenged their uh, privacy intruded on to check whether they're, as it were, an appropriate person to take forward as a victim. They may nurse that unfairness for a very long time as well. The most important thing is to deliver fairness and justice as quickly as possible. There's no doubt that although we're talking in a broader context, this justice delayed is justice denied is very true for victims. And of course it is true for defendants as yeah. well. Yeah, and, and I was only talking um, earlier this week to people involved in the blood products um, uh, uh, inquiry and and uh, a couple of people there and I was struck by the trauma that still echoes uh, you know clearly there it's a longer term health issue as well but but you you've mentioned a few times about do agencies police and others recognize the trauma uh, mm. of and, and do they respond to the trauma in appropriate ways and I'd be interested in your thoughts on that yeah, yes I mean it, it, Everything one says in, is at high level and, and many, many people, for instance, we did a survey of rape survivors over the summer last year. That's when the thing took place. And um, we found a lot of things. But one of them was that quite a cohort of those people who made a report and had gone were very, very um, pleased with the way the police had dealt with them. Mm. They had found that, you know, up to half of them were very pleased that, that, you know, they had been attended to, they had been treated with respect, they had been taken seriously, they had a sense of purpose mm. from the, the police. The other half, not at all. I mean, there was a great deal of criticism of cynicism by the police, over-intrusive questioning of them by the police. But, but, but make no mistake, that is very, very important. And the notion of believing, as I've set it out, is not just a construct for the police. Actually, if somebody is traumatised or has suffered, it is a key part of their recovery that when they summon up the capacity, the ability to tell somebody about what's happened to them, 
they need to be believed at that point would, would in you order that, not to be re-traumatized. And no, I mean, no, in a nutshell, your yeah. question is, do the agencies understand that? And, and, and I don't think that they, they yeah. do. And I think it's very important that there should be what is fashionably called trauma-informed training for everybody who has to handle a person who is likely to be traumatized as many victims of crime are mm. likely to be. Yeah, and, and certainly I, I think, you know, one thing I learned um, in my most recent job with Hillsborough was, was, you know, there's things that if you say you believe, you know, no, no, you understand the person, they'd quite often turn around and say, you don't understand. You, you can't understand, uh, you know, it's, 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 you know, you know, you've got to be quite careful about your use of language and your, you know, and, and careless platitudes, I think, in, in, you know, the, the, the individuals involved have very different experiences and, and want to be listened to rather than preached at, I think. It's, yes, and, and I mean, the police do play, as I know you know, an absolutely pivotal role in this. If somebody, you know, whether it be a sort of terrible Hillsborough event losing someone or being sexually abused or domestic abuse or slavery where you know the the way they've been dealt with is very um is 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 very very undermining and demeans their own self-esteem then the police play a pivotal role if you go to them looking for help and support and you are rejected mm either because they don't understand or, frankly, because they're defensive, as in some cases they are, if the incident concerns them and the way they've behaved, then it is, it is you know, amazingly uh, damaging in the long term as well as the short term because somebody has suffered. They've gone to the agency. We say, we'll help you, and they've got... Uh, poor treatment. They are demeaned by the offence, they're demeaned again by society's response, and the police are the first responders, and I know, recognise that quite yeah. often, but yeah. sometimes they're yeah. not fully aware how important they are. Yeah, yes, and, and you know, every contact leaves a trace type. It's quite, um, it does, and do you know this thing about sort of longevity of victimisation, if I can put it in that pretty pompous way, it is, it is, you know, poor for a person's future life. Being unable to extract themselves from the role of victim because they have never got justice is also you know, dreadful for their future life. Some people get tied into that victimhood because it's never been resolved. Yeah. And that is not not a good future. No, uh, responsibility on all of us, in my view, yeah. you know, to try to understand how people who've been in this yeah. in this position are going to be left in it if we don't all yeah. do our best to, to to just do the basics, really, treat them well. And, and just to go go back slightly to you know you you, you made the point, and again in in our seminar. Um, uh, earlier this month, there was a lot of debate about the believing victims point. And um, I, I just a, just one thing I'd just push back a little bit on it. Certainly my reading of all the evidence on it is that people have a, it's what they don't want to be is disbelieved, which isn't always quite the same as believing. I, I think you're, you're spot on when you say actually the state should not prevent somebody bringing their harm to it to be resolved and that there should be a belief in effect 
for that gatekeeping. Um, but, but, the, but I think the really important thing, and I think you have implied this, is that the, the investigation after that is, does not, is, is not disbelieving, uh, um, but is, 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 is seeks to, to, to find if there is such a concept of the truth in that, in that way. I mean, the word belief does conjure up, you know, belief against all rationality too, doesn't it? Belief in yeah. Christ, Father Christmas, belief in yeah. fairies. And so it's an unfortunate wo word in that sense, because yeah. one's not expecting. And I think it's unrealistic to think the police ever thought it meant you have to keep on believing when you can see the writing on the wall as plain as day. I don't think the police are that daft, frankly. But, it, you know, what the point is, is to believe it in the sense of taking it seriously. Yes, yes. Yeah. Acknowledging that it's a wrong. Yes. So that does imply acceptance, doesn't it? Yes. yes. And then going forward yeah. and looking at it. And yes. you know, I don't see a contradiction in that at all. And I didn't understand how Richard Enriquez managed to say it was reversing the burden of proof. I don't know if you do. I mean, if we're never to believe, you know, six people who don't know each other who all see me shoot you, we can't believe any of them without reversing the burden of proof. That makes yeah. this not the slightest sense. Yeah. I, 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 that. The burden yeah. of proof is when you guys have got all your evidence together, yeah. does it stack up so you can take it to court? doesn't matter yes. um, what you believed in, you know, that you believed it in the first place. That's just the right thing to do in order to go forward with the case. I mean, if I my house is burgled, it will be a rare police officer who doesn't believe me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you just have to get into where yeah. we're going with this questioning well, belief. It's primarily circled around sexual offences. Yeah. Although, well, although Vera, I will, I do remember going to a couple of burglaries when I was a, a lot younger and I had darker hair. And, um, and in those days, the, um, uh, I do remember one or two that were definitely uh, not Proper, I didn't think were, were genuine ones, and I did investigate those accordingly. You know, not not, not with a frame of mind. Though. I think that's the important thing you're making. Don't approach it with a frame of mind. Well, you just the fact that you've just proved my point, Rob, yeah. your own, I think. So yeah. you've seen two dodgy burglaries. That doesn't yeah. mean you go to every burglar you investigate exactly. and assume it's dodgy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's, um, that's that's the risk. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have a positive obligation to take it seriously. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's absolutely, absolutely so. and interestingly, with workshops with police officers that I held um, on this matter, um, you were dead right. They, they, they were actually very much more pragmatic. They recognised the importance of accepting unconditionally the the allegation, and then and then and then and then being fairly dispassionate as they tried to dig into what's gone on, you know, but supportive of the person. Uh, it doesn't really, you know, in, in, in that behind it. So. So I think cops, as you say, are, are mostly pretty pragmatic about it and understand. Yeah. And I mean, so I, I think the background paper, I didn't, I read, read it pretty quickly and it was quite interesting, but I think it suggested that that's all changed, but it hasn't, of course. The College of Policing say exactly what we've just said. Yes, it does. It does, it does. Um, you, must, you should believe it and then yeah. investigate it impartially. Yeah. And moving on a little bit into, you know, um, do you, well, one thing that has exercised people in terms of non-recent is whether there should be a limit on bringing a, an allegation forward again. Um, have you any thoughts on that? Because it, it's, you know, I have heard, and interestingly, actually, judges and those in the judiciary have said to me more often there should be a statute of limitation, but whether that's... Uh, um, but, but have you any thoughts on 
statutes of limitation or, or are the way we currently operate or whether they're, you know, is, do we strike the right approach on this? So we, I don't know how you could frame a statute of limitations on crime because the impact of some intimate crimes is such that people are incapable of talking about it for a very long time. I mean, sometimes never. Yeah. And so it would be unfair to somebody who is still suffering, but ultimately, perhaps because we've now got better resources to help, more yeah. helplines, more counselling, I don't know, is finally able to talk about it, only to be told that the time expired last week and mm. there's nothing to be done about it. I'd find it very difficult to measure what a statute of limitations ought to be. And there'll be that sense from victims, won't there, that the individual who done it has had the whole of their life, yeah. um, you know, to, to yeah. live the way they wished, but has actually tied their victim into a, a, a frame of being that has limited what they could achieve and what, how happy they could be. So there would be a, a great deal of resentment, I think, of something as arbitrary as a statute of limitation. I mean, after all, even in tort, you know, in civil cases, mm. although there is a statute of limitations, if you think about, you know, the building not showing any cracks, despite mm. the fact that it was poorly built for another dozen years, you can still bring an action outside the statute of limitations if the damage only became available and obvious to you at that time. Mm. So it would be much, it would be a bad idea to have a harsher stop. Yeah on yeah. crime than yeah. it would be on talks. Yeah. And, and as I've seen um, through my work is, is I think judges do, you know, applications are made to judges about the fact so much time has passed and they weigh those up. Um, you know, they, they, can, can there be a fair trial? Can there, there be the right evidence presented? Um, and, and is it strong enough? And, and judges assess that on the journey. So I, 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 I tend to agree, I, I, but I do know some people will argue quite strongly on a, for a statute of limitations around it. I, think, I mean, things get harder to remember, obviously, the yeah. longer the time yeah. has passed. And I imagine, though, I don't know, that when something, you know, very horrible has happened to you, you don't just remember it how it was, mm. you live it. Yeah. And I imagine you relive it slightly differently each time. I mean, we all, I, I, I've done done that. You know, I'm absolutely sure that a judge has said in a summing up this set of words, which will help me to appeal when I was a barrister. And then when I finally get the transcript, it's not quite how I remembered it, you know, and I've wished it into the way I want it to be or just, just yeah. rethought it. So obviously it's the same point again, isn't it? Justice yeah. delayed is justice denied. Yeah. But there are some some cases where, you know, you just can't get a person. Yeah, yeah. You can realise they've been wrong sometimes for a very long time afterwards. And they deserve justice just like the rest of us. Now, as we're sort of in, into the, the process of um, uh, yeah. this, what that one thing actually I would really like your thoughts on, because I we've struggled with it with, with Hillsborough, is... is is we've been challenged a lot on, you know, some of the um, victims or the families of those who died and, and who are victims um, uh, have know the story inside out, knew what had happened on the day, had researched over many years and, and had very strong views about how um, the case should potentially be presented or the, the and, and we were at pains and, and almost a, 
very, you know, not to let them be seen to steer the case because um, in, in any way, mm. and, 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 and you know, we had to do that because it would be open to challenge. Um, and, and they did not steer the case, although they contributed their thoughts, obviously, and they were listened to. But, but, I, but, but I did sort of feel it was, a, it was an odd, you know, that they were people who you could involve a bit more, I think, in the case. We didn't, but we could have done, I felt, at times. And, and you know, it, do, do, do you think some of the process and the procedural stuff around, um, around cases tends to keep victims at arm's length and fails to engage them as much as they could do? Or is it individuals involved? No, I think it's, it's, I think you, you've got a very good point. And, and out of the context of Hillsborough, which must have been a very special case mm. in terms of the level of involvement that, that they wanted and could have, particularly post the inquest, in a way, that must have changed how they saw their... Position. But if you look at just ordinarily the way victims are treated, I mean, uh, we pr produced a paper for a victim's law yesterday, which advocated that victims of crime should be treated as participants. Mm. So that's not to say parties at all, but there is a, a stance which I understand that the state prosecutes on behalf of all others, me and you, as well as the victim of that crime. Uh, and it's certainly not something to do with vengeance between the victim and the defendant. But to say that yours and my interest in a rape trial, that it is a well-run trial, is the same as that of the victim, completely to miss the point that the victim has been hurt and the victim may be hurt again by the process. And you have to have special regard to a victim as a person who is a participant in the whole business, whether they want to be or not, and they usually don't, from the start, you know, they will have been hurt, they will have been uh, treated differentially well or not, just according to the things that we've just talked about, how the criminal justice process deals with them will have an enormous impact on their future life, and they will be a participant long after the criminal justice process is over, whatever its outcome is, if they are in a you know in a, a case where the impact is like that, so I think that although it is right that the state prosecutes neutrally on our behalf and not on behalf of a particular complainant, there is a special category for a victim who has suffered, mm. um, as I've described, and they need to have all of the rights that I've set out, which don't interfere with the um, defendant and don't de-neutralise the prosecution in any way, but they do mean you recognise that you need to deliver justice to them as well by treating them as appropriate, as set out in the code, as I've set out from what works in all of those ways as you go along. And that is a, a, a point which will help them to cope and recover. So, I mean, there is a notion, isn't there, called therapeutic justice, and I'm not wholly, you know, at all a believer in it, and I'm not saying the criminal justice system is the way to make people cope and recover, or it is essentially therapeutic at all, but I'm saying that there are obvious things that are well settled. So I asked when we uh, that What Works report done by my predecessor in 2016, when I arrived in the role, I said, do we need to update that? And they said, this researcher said, no, it's been the same for the last 20 years. You know, the, the needs are simple and straightforward. The problem is they don't get them. 
because, and they don't, I mean, the victim's code is totally disregarded, almost completely. You know, we've done plenty of work. Only 20% of victims who've been into the criminal justice system and come out the other end have ever heard of the victim's code, don't know their rights. So uh, 17% of victims remember being offered a victim personal statement. uh, And and so that's that's pretty unsatisfactory. And there's quite a, a decline in support for the criminal justice system as a consequence of these pretty simple things to do not being done. I think if we could shift the understanding that victims are participants in the way that I've described, mm. then it would be of more obvious to police and to yeah. and to court service that they do merit this level of attention and support and they should have it. So I'm a big advocate of that shift and it's in place in a couple of Commonwealth um, adversarial systems, which after all are based on ours, and it has done no harm whatsoever to the process, but it has greatly improved the recovery of victims and their sense of justice, whether they've got a conviction or not. Yeah. It's not that much the point. It's whether they've been restored by the system to you know, their appropriate level as a non-demeaned person or whether they've been made worse. But and, and you restored, now that you bring up, in, in effect, indirectly, but something I, I feel very passionately about having, um, you know, earlier in my career, I, as, as you may remember, I went to Thames Valley and, and because um, at that time, restorative justice practices were, were really being pioneered there. Yeah. Um, and, and I felt, uh, and I did feel, you know, it's not the sole answer to, to justice, but it is, an, it is another way of framing, looking for it and framing it. But, but one of the things that strikes me is that particularly with non-recent um, and historic matters, there's, I, I see very little use of restorative practices in, in the UK, you know, a little bit abroad in certain, certain ways, but, but in the UK, not a lot. Um, have, you any, you know, do, have you any thoughts on that? Why, why, why is it difficult for us to deliver restorative practice? I think it's used, I mean, it's used in quite in, in an informal way by lots of cops on the street, isn't yes. it? It's a sort of community yes. resolution way. Yeah. Um, and, and that, I think, is very, very helpful indeed and can do, can do a lot. It's also, I think, dealt with a, quite a bit in schools, mm. I think, those mm. practices. But in the criminal justice system, I mean, it hasn't really ever taken no. off. No. I, uh, uh, and, uh, I mean, I... I, when I was the Police and Crime Commissioner in Northumbria and victim services were passed down to PCCs um, because, you know, I mean, when, when I got elected, there was no smell of victim services. I was supposed to be, you know, an ex-military person commanding the police or something. Victim services transformed that role, really. And when that came down to us, there was a, a, a lump of money for restorative justice. So we did our best. I recruited someone from the yachts because the youth justice system has taken on restorative justice far better than any other bit of the justice system. So we recruited someone from a yacht. We got the every one of our victims hub staff to qualify to do basic level restorative justice. We got the restorative justice quality mark for the whole place. We, after a while, we were able to recruit two probation officers, that is to bring them into the victim's hub and get them to work on restorative justice so that they would assess the defendant, 
the victims hub people would assess the complainants, the victims, and see if we could bring them together. And those cohorts didn't have anything else to do but to do that. But we didn't get big numbers at all. We got high levels of satisfaction from yes. the few people yes. who came through extremely high levels of satisfaction, kind of mutually, really. So it can be very powerful, but we didn't get a lot of people um, coming into it. It, it does strike me, though, as something you said, is, is that once you, you put it on the trajectory into the CJS, it's almost like once it goes formally into that system, taking a restorative approach becomes almost impossible. Um, and, and, uh, and, and there aren't mechanisms that will, will assess it and move it and shift it once you're in there. So no, I, I mean, I've been, been thinking and saying with, you know, with like-minded people to, to chat about it, you know, the delays that there are in the justice system now surely justify, you know, a new initiative to try to facilitate better restorative justice and you know out of court disposals where the victim can get satisfaction and the uh, defendant be dealt with in a just fashion um, should be being done much more systematically to take a lot of cases which are going to be in a queue for a while mm -hmm. out and get people justice more quickly I think it, this would be a ripe opportunity to try and rebuild restorative justice there's always a kind of limit on it, isn't there, in that the ritual would put there by the state, because it, 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 one way of expressing restorative justice is you kind of take the state out of it, don't you? Yes, you yes. Make yes. it between him yeah. and him, and yeah. somebody negotiates that. So it's a kind of private justice, yeah. and there'll be a level at which the state will say, no, 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 this is far too serious yeah. to be done in that way. You can do that afterwards if you want, but yeah. we have got to on behalf of the state, make sure it's in the formal system it, first. It's interesting you say, Mark, Mark Burns-Williamson has um, dropped a question asking whether you've got views about the growing crisis of backlog of cases, because of course, some of them scheduled for two or three years, they're becoming sort of non-recent in their own right. You know, if they, if they take that long to, 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 to come to any form of justice, and you mentioned one solution, but it is a problem of keeping victims on board and engaged in that period. So. It, 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 it certainly is, and and uh, it's great that Mark um, Mark is 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 with us today. Great great uh, friend of mine, very very good PCC. Um, uh, yes, I mean, I've, you know, the number of times I've expressed my worries about the delay for victims. Yeah. So uh, I mean, I accept that the court service is doing its best to try mm -hmm. and. The MOJ has finally put money in so that there can be enough sitting days. I mean, they're talking about, uh, you know, many more sitting days than there were in the years preceding the um, pandemic. So hopefully it can be got back. But no, it is very, very difficult. There are two things that I think, uh, one which is moving, well, both of which are moving, but far too slowly that can help. The first is that if people who have, whose crimes are the sort of hidden harm crime, the intimate crime that we've been talking about. They need to have a supporter and an advocate with them from the start. Mm. And our, our rape survey that I've, I've mentioned um, last year found people were twice as likely to sustain a complaint in the criminal justice system if they'd got an ISVA or yeah. an IVA or even an IVA, which is a, you know, a general person, not a specialist in either domestic yeah. abuse or sexual violence, they could sustain it better. 
Of course, that puts enormous pressure on Invert and Invert services because they don't have people who come in and then go out again. They have people coming in and staying and more people coming in. So the government has spent some emergency funding on boosting ISVAs and IDVAs to try and hold on to people. But the big thing that could make a difference, I think, is Section 28. Mm. So this is where you can, you do your um, ABE interview and it's video, mm. you know, pretty, pretty normal stuff. And then the cross-examination is done within a few months, the video having been served on the defence, appropriate disclosure having followed so that they're ready to proceed, they then cross-examine, usually over a television link, and that's videoed, and then the two videos, as it were, go into a box, and the victim walks away. Yeah, yeah. And they, they are then out of the queue, and that's now nationwide for, set, for vulnerable victims, yeah. but it isn't for intimidated victims, who are the two yeah. categories the 1999 legislation provides for it. And you yeah. could double and triple the very, very, you know, troubled, difficult victims who need quick justice if they're yeah. going to get it at all by using Section 28 for intimidated as well. And I'm trying to press that. Right. Uh, and, and related to that, that is a question that's coming from Marion Fitzgerald, who um, is sort of more about the fact that different, um, that, that policy prescriptions or, or our approach to these matters tend to be categories you know rape investigations or 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 robbery and of course you know it, it often doesn't for the victim it's not that category that's so important it's the harm they feel from what might be deemed a minor offense against our definitions and and it's how we can um distinguish or, or you know the extent to which we can just not follow a process route to deal with people but to deal with them according to the harm they they experience um you know it, it can get it can be very impersonal process for people how how do you help people recognize the harm as opposed to the category if you know what i mean yeah that that i mean that is a very good question obviously we we stopped uh, victim services from only dealing with cases in a particular category, which was how it functioned prior to the devolution to police and crime commissioners because of that very recognition. And actually there is, and it is a hugely important area, though it always sounds very minor, there is a real problem about victims of antisocial behaviour here. So if somebody commits a crime against me, pinches my spade out the garden, isn't going to undermine me very significantly. Mm. But if somebody's a victim of antisocial behaviour and, you know, people are drinking cans of beer outside on the wall, kicking a ball against the gable end, stamping on their plants, chucking something at their windows, calling them names when they appear, um, it's, it's very, very undermining indeed. And yet it doesn't qualify at the moment for victim support services at all. They're delivered by good PCCs like Mark, and, and it was by me, out of a, a bundle of money that they get out of the policing budget somehow. But mm. the Ministry of Justice definitions don't allow for that support, and they need to be supported just like victims of crime. And if you like, that's a good, a good example of exactly what you're saying. People need to be assessed on their needs, not on whether they've had a burglary uh, or a, yeah. a robbery. Yeah. It's, it's how it's affected them. Yeah, and I, I certainly remember as a younger officer again, um, getting very 
concerned about the boxes we put things in um, rather than the people behind them um, who could be deeply traumatised by, by what others might regard as minor. But yes, I think it, it's really important. And, and um, Peter Hersey um, uh, asked a question about consequences of something like a Hillsborough disaster, um, the long-term cumulative social harms that might remain, still remain hidden. Um, uh, and of course that, that, that could be quite broad, but certainly, um, you know, I, I, I suppose for me would be the thoughts of, of um, the, the, the distrust in, in ever coming to a resolution on matters, you know, I, I suppose they're, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to interpret the question a bit, but, um, but do you see long-term social harms that we just don't address coming out of, of these sort of matters? Well, clearly, there, there, there must be, as a consequence of Hillsborough, uh, an undermining of confidence in the police. And of course, that's very, very serious indeed. I mean, my direct experience, or almost direct experience, is about the way a lot of the population I used to serve as PCC in the Northeast were dealt with during the miners' strike. There is still in families in Northumberland and in County Durham, an absolute dislike of the police mm. because at that time they felt that they were persecuted by the police if they were on strike. And things like uh, Orgreave, which uh, were, were not honestly presented as cases, and I say that with no fear of contradiction, I defended three of the miners in Orgreave. Those shattered the belief in the police and the confidence to some extent in law and order. And they still do a generation later. And in the immediate aftermath of um, the miners' strike, if there was a case in Durham, which is absolutely the coal field, um, and is mostly the coalfield. Only the cities are a little bit different, and there's only effectively Durham. If there was a trial at Durham Crown Court, and the clash was a police officer's word and a defendant's word, he would be acquitted. Mm. Yeah. Time and time and time and time again, yeah. because the public did not want to help the police, and they did not want to rely on their uh, honesty, because somebody in their family or somebody who was a neighbour had had a run-in, probably with someone from the Met or from Wales or from, you know, those people brought in who were not, as we want police to be, part of the community, but were complete outsiders, you know, just getting overtime for, for policing this group of people. I mean, that's the, that's the long-term consequence that I've had the closest relationship with through my experience, even in the last few years, of how the police are regarded uh, in these places. Uh, perhaps find it because finally, because um, it actually relates to what um, a, a, a question put forward by one of the attend attendees to this discussion about this, you know what what can be done to acknowledge that the state's role in that social injustice and criminal injustice. Um, you know the, the um, you know this person refers to Stephen Lawrence. Um, uh, inquiry, um, but but you know clearly we set up big inquiries which come with their challenges and things. But but um, you know it just strikes me that, that sometimes the acknowledgement or the apology 
feels a little bit late and half-hearted if you're not, you know, you know, what, what, what more can we do to, to I mean, repair this? You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, aren't you? So there is probably no answer in the criminal justice system of quite, of, of quite that, that kind of, you could see what happened in that, in that context in, in, in the Hillsborough prosecution of Mr. Duckenfield, can't you? You know, one individual after all these years, well into, I guess he's in his 70s or his 80s, I don't know now, you know, very difficult, really. Very difficult to see that that was an, an outcome that would, you know, whatever it was that would, would help a great, a great deal. But it is very important to have, you know, the criminal justice system is one thing, it is not pursuing the broader truth. It's not actually, I mean, it's an adversarial process, isn't it? Mm. Um, and, and where there is something that is unearthed, where the state's agencies have misbehaved or may have misbehaved, how they've done it, why they've done it, to whom and who suffered, do need to be unearthed in a proper investigative fashion. And I think we are very slow with public inquiries. I mean, the blood products one that you've referred to, um, by the time it, it comes, many people will have died who've been affected by it. The yeah. one about, you know, the I have a big concern about the one about the demonst special demonstration squad who engaged some uh, in sexual relationships with women to give themselves a cover story. That's been going several years now and has not produced very much to assist. I think there needs to be, when we acknowledge that the state agencies have got something wrong, a more fleet of foot way of looking into it and an obligation, um, frankly, of candor on all the participants so that it can be done quickly and effectively. Yes, uh, and what a great rather, point. A rather down note on which we're ending. Well, no, but that, ultimately, it's what we are looking at. We are looking about harms, considerable yeah. harms from the past. And, and in a way, one thing that the conference in June will be looking at uh, saying is, what should we suggest could be improved? And, and sort of speed, you know, a degree of, of alacrity and acknowledgement and, and then... Uh, delivering an inquiry that meets needs perhaps quicker and and with with candor as you described um, is sort of the context that, that we might want to explore at the conference. So yes, yeah. and, and think too if you'll be it'd be a great conference. I think think too about who should hold them. Are yeah. high court judges always the right people um, to to do that? They may be. In some cases, they they may not. Yeah, how interesting. Well, there's so much more we could explore here. I mean, I've I, as you know, I've sort of explored a few potential questions, and we're, we're only halfway through that list. Um, yeah, we're only uh, up one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and but it, but what we can do is leave it on a cliffhanger so that people will join the conference in June and 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 come and answer some of those other questions that we could have put about the nature of those inquiries, how they are operated, um, the the. Uh, criminal justice system and it, its mechanisms and the extent to which it helps or hinders and so on. So there's there's lots to explore. Much of which you've touched upon has been fantastic, Vera, really good and a great insight. Um, if we could all, I, I, you won't be able to hear the applause, but I'm sure it's resounding. Uh, but I do really appreciate your insight and um, uh, and do hope you might be able to join us for the conference later in the year. But um, in any case. You know, I'm, 
extremely grateful for um, your observations and your 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 inputs uh, and thoughts today. I think they've been um, added a lot. I hope it's been a helpful contribution to the conference, and I'd love to uh, to to be involved in that in some way as a listener and uh, and a learner, particularly. Thanks very much. Fantastic. Over to you, Ed, for your concluding comments. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, thank you both so much for a really insightful discussion. It's given us a huge amount to think about and uh, to feed into the conference. I'd also like to reassure Vera that Cumberland Lodge's links with Gray's Inn and indeed all the Inns of Court continues. And also that the place is probably looking better than it's ever looked in its history, mainly because during lockdown, we've been able to get the paintbrushes out like uh, so many people. I'd like to thank everyone that's participated uh, this morning. All that's been discussed today will be carefully thought through and will be fed into the conference in June. And that in turn will lead to a report with ideas, recommendations for policymakers, practitioners. Uh, and when we launch that report, we hope that those taking part today will, will join us for that. But in the meantime, if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars at Cumberland Lodge, you can sign up on the Keep In Touch page of our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. Also to say we're taking inquiries for the police conference in June. Tickets are now on sale and you can inquire via our website. If you're a PhD student and you're applying, uh, applications are open for our bursary places and you can download the application on the event page of our website. And just before I say goodbye, I'd like to say that just like many charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during the pandemic. If you've enjoyed today's uh, discussion and you'd like to support our work, we'd be very grateful if you consider making a small donation and you can do so via the on, uh, Just Giving page on our website and we'll put a link up immediately after the webinar. So thank you again, Vera and Rob, and thank you everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>